Hey, my lovely listeners. I have a favour to ask of you. The British Podcast Awards are celebrating the best in British podcasting, and they have a listener's choice category, recognising excellence, creativity, talent and originality and passion in British podcasting. And guess what? I'm British, and I would love it if you would take one minute to vote for Crime Analyst. I've heard from so many of you about how my work and Crime Analyst has changed your life. And from some of you, you've told me that it saved your life and helped so many more. So please channel that love into voting for Crime Analyst in the Listener's Choice Award. Now, you'll have to confirm your vote by email once you've selected Crime Analyst. And it literally takes a minute to do. You just go to www.britishpodcastawards.com and select Listener's Choice Award, type in Crime Analyst and do it slowly so it comes up, you'll see my logo, and then confirm your vote in your email. And you have to confirm it for your vote to count. And you can vote from anywhere in the world. And the votes are open until September the 5th. And one last thing, my lovely listeners, head over to YouTube and subscribe to the Crime Analyst YouTube channel. And yes, I have a YouTube channel. And I know many of you have messaged me on social media saying you need to tell everybody you've got this YouTube channel. You need to tell them on your podcast. That's what you asked me to do. So that's what I'm doing here. And you'll see that I have unique content, including analysis and insight of the Gilgo Beach case, the Idaho murders, the Murdoch murders, Nicola Bully, Joanna Simpson, the case against Colin Pitchfork and the case against Andrew Tate and so much more. Let's build the crime analyst tribe. Together, we can change the world. Thank you, my lovely listeners. Before Alec Murdoch's fate was sealed, entering court in a tan jumpsuit and shackles, Judge Newman offers the disbarred attorney who once practiced in the same court a final chance to speak the truth. But I'm innocent. I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my wife Maggie, and I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my son Paul. Paul. Well, and it might not have been you. It might have been uh, the monster you become when you uh, take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Newman, who has reserved opinion and comment on the case for six weeks, speaking from the heart Friday about Murdoch's tangled web of lies. To have you come and testify that it was just another ordinary day that my wife and son and I were out just enjoying life. Not credible, not believable. You can convince yourself about it, but obviously you have the inability to convince anyone else about that. But Murdoch's defense team feels ultimately that it wasn't fair. They plan to appeal on grounds that Murdoch's financial crimes should have never been admissible. So it was judicial bait and switch. Murdoch's team says they wavered on whether he should testify in his own defense, but in the end decided without it, he'd have no chance to be found innocent. If he didn't take the stand, a lawyer um, who's been accused of mutilating his wife and son. What would the jury think of that? It was really a tough call in this case. Was he always solid on the side of wanting to testify? Pretty much, yes. At times during the trial, Jim Griffin, who was originally retained to represent Paul Murdoch in the 2019 boat case, overwhelmed with emotion. I respectfully request that you do not compound 
a family tragedy with another. Thank you. Never once during the whole uh, period of time did I ever think Alec could have murdered Maggie and Paul. And then I sit here today, um, my belief in that is as strong as it was um, the day they were murdered. Would you call Alec Murdoch your friend? Yeah, he, he, he is my friend. I am, um, like many others, I'm disgusted with his conduct as a lawyer, and he's put a black stain on the legal profession. He has been very gracious, very humble. But for the judge, amends aren't enough, handing down two consecutive life sentences, saying accountability has come to call and will for all of Murdoch's remaining days. And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. I'm sure. All day and every night. Yeah, I'm sure. Katie, one thing we have seen in this modern trial is the role technology now plays in solving crimes. That's right, Lester. Typically, when you think of forensics, you think of DNA or fingerprints. But in this case, it was text messages, social media posts and GPS that told the story of this timeline. Both sides agree that without that critical piece of evidence, the cell phone video from the kennels, this case might have ended another way. Lester. All right, Katie Beck, thank you. And joining me now is senior legal correspondent Laura Jarrett. Laura, what are the chances of a successful appeal under these circumstances? The odds are not in his favor here, Lester. The defense team has vowed to take this all the way up to the Supreme Court if necessary. But the standard for overturning a jury verdict, it's quite high. It rarely happens. And that's because arguing that there was error at the trial isn't enough. He'd have to show one that actually influenced the verdict. As we just heard, Murdoch's lawyers say the judge shouldn't have let in evidence of his past financial crimes to prove his motive in this case, that it tainted the jury's view of their client. But it's not clear that it made any difference to the end result. At least one juror says that it was the video placing Murdoch at the scene of the crime just moments before those murders that was most compelling, Lester. But what happens now in those financial issues? Yeah, some 99 different financial crimes. Those are still pending in front of the very same judge that sentenced him today and that everything that Murdoch admitted on the stand in that case can be used against him in the future, Lester. All right, Laura, Jared, thank you. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. What did you make of the last episode? It's fascinating how Murdoch centres himself in everything, isn't it? That is the height of male entitlement and such a patriarchal move. He most likely doesn't even know that he's doing it, and I'm throwing it out there. Many men won't see anything wrong with it either. Sadly, a lot of men do think that they're the bee's knees and that everyone and everything should revolve around them. That's why there are so many cases of women and children being murdered by men. I can't stop thinking about Taylor Cox and her 11-week-old baby girl, Murphy. They were brutally murdered by Matthew Cox, the husband and father, in Rockhampton, Queensland, Australia. He murdered them both and then flew to Brisbane and stayed in a four-star hotel. Two days later, he handed himself into the police. Taylor carried baby Murphy for nine months and brought life into the world. That's such a special time in a woman's life and when you're most vulnerable. Yet this entitled bloke chose to kill them both. I cannot even imagine their last moments. A new mother, 
desperate and terrified, trying to protect her newborn baby girl. I feel so angry thinking about it. What he didn't do was choose to walk away. What he didn't do was choose to get his emotions back under control. What he didn't choose to do was separate from her if the relationship was no longer working out. Instead, he felt it was his right to end their lives, brutally and violently. This is exclusively a male thing, and I've talked about exactly this in so many cases, including Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie, Lacey and Connor Peterson and Scott Peterson, pregnant Morel Sturrock and David Yates, and Maggie and Paul Murdoch and Alec Murdoch, to name a few. In Taylor and Murphy's case, Matthew Cox killed them both, and then he got on a plane and checked himself into a luxurious hotel for two days. He brutally murdered them, and then he indulged himself. That tells me everything about him. People saying that he was an inpatient in a psychiatric hospital a year before, and suggesting that this is about mental health issues. Well, there are plenty of people who have issues and treatment who do not do this. I don't believe this is a mental health-related issue. It's a selfish, entitled man disorder issue. And I have no time for his PMS, his poor me syndrome pity party, which has already started, and no doubt we'll hear more and more about this as the case comes up for court. Taylor is the 43rd Australian woman to be murdered this year, and Murphy, the 10th child, to be killed in Australia this year. This is unbelievable, and it is the patriarchy, and we have to change it. Men need to speak up and out and hold other men to account. It's not your right to harm women and children. And with this case, a mother and newborn at their most vulnerable. We have to get better at holding violent and controlling men to account for their behaviour, and particularly before they escalate. 20. Talking of entitled men who feel they can do anything and that they're untouchable, I'm now going to dive back into the Murdoch murders and highlight key moments that are important in the timeline. On the 14th of December 2022, Murdoch agreed to a $4.3 million settlement with the family of Gloria Satterfield. On the 21st of January 2022, a grand jury indicted Murdoch on 23 new charges, including breach of trust with fraudulent intent and computer crimes. Now, at this stage, there were 71 charges involving the theft of the $8.5 million over a span of 11 years. On the 24th of January, Mallory Beach's mother, Renee, filed a claim against the estates of Margaret and Paul Murdoch. In February, Morgan Doughty and Miley Ortman filed lawsuits against Murdoch and Parker's, the gas station that sold Paul alcohol. On the 7th of March, Murdoch gives up the right to accept any interest in Maggie Murdoch's estate. The Edisto Beach House, a Moselle, would go to Buster. On the 9th of March, court-appointed receivers tasked with managing Murdoch's assets alleged Murdoch was moving money around days after he gave up the right to Maggie's estate. You see, Murdoch was a busy bloke. Being in jail didn't stop him. As Mandy Matney and Liz Farrell did the FOIA requests and they got access to the phone calls, I listened to some of them and you heard Mandy talk about those calls. 
And she said that they put her in a dark place, listening to Murdoch, because of his pattern of behaviour. She said he'd smooth people first of all, and then at the end, he'd hit them with an ask. He wanted them to do something for him. Well, with Buster, he was telling him what to do. And I agree with Mandy. He was so used to calling the shots and moving money and assets around and using other people to do so. Eric Bland called Murdoch criminally intelligent. He knew how to hide money and move money to fly under the radar, like a good, well-practiced, organised criminal. Because that is what this is. Organised crime. On the 6th of March, the grand jury indicted Murdoch on four new charges related to defrauding multiple insurance companies, along with his best mate and attorney Corey Fleming. Now, Corey Fleming has just been sentenced for his crimes, and I'm going to tell you more about that momentarily. On the 22nd of April, Nautilus, the insurance company involved with the Satterfield fraud case, filed a complaint saying that Murdoch's attorneys, State Senator Dick Hartputlian and Jim Griffin, were preventing the company from cooperating with a federal state grand jury subpoena. Well, 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 that seems rather naughty of Dick and Jim, particularly as on the 1st of June, Murdoch confessed to stealing $4.3 million from the death settlement against the estate of Gloria Satterfield. On the 3rd of June, the Satterfield family were granted permission to exhume Gloria's body. I just want to take a moment to say how awful it must have been for them to go through this. Again, all because of one man, Alec Murdoch. On the 28th of June, a grand jury indicted Murdoch and Curtis Eddie Smith with criminal conspiracy and narcotic offences. They were accused of conspiring to purchase and distribute oxycodone in Colleton County from the 7th of October 2013 to the 7th of September 2021. In the indictment, the state grand jury alleged a criminal conspiracy regarding approximately 437 cheques, totalling 2.4 million that went from Murdoch to Curtis Eddie Smith from October the 7th, 2013 through to February the 28th, 2021. million. That's a lot of money. So that was what all the checks were about. Money laundering. Now for me, given the smallest transactions over a long period of time, it shows that Murdoch was strategic and was trying to fly under the radar with each transaction being under $10,000 so as not to draw attention to them. This is instructive. It shows that Murdoch had a long-term plan regarding the money he stole and made. And let's not forget that from 2011 to 2021, he made about $16 million as a lawyer, while stealing just under $9 million from his law firm, settlement money for clients and other places, according to the indictments. In a previous episode, I talked about the nine-plus property transactions between 2011 and 2021 under LLCs that Murdoch was part of. Remember the properties he bought with his mate Bowler that he never sold off? Also, remember the Mazelle transfer to Murdoch from Bowler for a meagre $5. And then, there were a lot of bizarre jellyfish companies Murdoch was connected to. In other words, he knew what he was doing. Hiding money and moving money around. Let's not forget that the state grand jury indicted Murdoch for schemes to defraud victims of $8,492,888.31. That 
is a lot of money. He was clearly funneling it off using different people and different means. Now this makes sense, given what he told Jenny Seconder about moving money around in Maggie's name. He wanted to hide money given the boat crash lawsuit. And remember those calls that Mandy Matney and Liz Farrell listened to? She said that he was still moving money around from prison. Plus, he must have more money. As I said before, Dick and Jim are being paid by him. So I really hope that investigators follow the money and the organised crime nature of his behaviour. And I don't believe that if he was taking drugs at the rate that he said he was, that he would be able to do all of this. So let's not forget the drug trafficking component. Murdoch and Curtis Eddie Smith were also indicted in an alleged conspiracy regarding the distribution and purchase of oxycodone. In fact, Curtis Eddie Smith was indicted for four counts of money laundering, over $100,000 regarding the alleged disposition of the cheques. The state grand jury also charged Curtis Eddie Smith with forgery for allegedly forging endorsements on some of the cheques. Curtis Eddie Smith was also indicted for three other drug offences, including allegedly trafficking over 10 grams of methamphetamine. As I said before, it's quite remarkable the number of charges against Curtis Eddie Smith when it was Murdoch who wielded the power and control here. It was Murdoch who called the shots. They are not the same. And as Mandy said, Curtis Eddie Smith has been charged with more offences based on what Murdoch said he did. And he is not a credible person. On the 12th of July, the South Carolina Supreme Court formally disbarred Murdoch. Finally. That seems to have taken a long time. On the 14th of July, 2022, the grand jury indicts Murdoch with the deaths of Maggie and Paul, so just over a year later from when they were murdered. On the 20th of July, Murdoch pled not guilty to murdering Maggie and Paul. A grand jury also indicted Russell Lafitte on various counts of bank and wire fraud in connection with his schemes with Murdoch. Now, Lafitte was found guilty of those crimes on the 22nd of November after a week-long trial. He was sentenced on August the 1st, 2023. I posted about the sentencing on social media. Lafitte's family and friends gave testimony about what a good bloke he is. His mother told the court he picked her up once after she had a car accident and it was reiterated time and time again Lafitte was a husband, a father and an uncle. The case was made by his lawyer, Mark Moore, that it was just a bit of financial mismanagement, which is so far from the truth. Prosecutors said that Lafitte transferred personal loans to both himself and Murdoch from the six conservator accounts and the funds were used for personal expenses. Lafitte was an active participant who stole from the victims and as Eric Bland said, he put a swimming pool in his house paid for by the Plyler sisters. Lafitte collected around $392,000 for his work as a personal representative for six clients. Fortunately, Judge Richard Gurgle corrected the narrative each time Lafitte's lawyer, Mark Moore, tried to rewrite the narrative and minimise his crimes. The most egregious part was how vulnerable the victims were at the time they relied on Lafitte and Murdoch to do the right thing by them. And one of the most reprehensible arguments made by Mark Moore was that Hakeem Pinckney was not vulnerable because he was dead when Lafitte stole his money. Therefore, he wasn't vulnerable. Seriously, it's so disgusting. He said that out loud 
to the judge in the courtroom, and the judge remarked that it was one of the most offensive things he'd ever heard. Lafitte was sentenced to seven years in federal prison and ordered to pay $3.55 million in restitution. Now, seven years still doesn't seem long enough to me for what he did, even though Lafitte apologised to the victims in court, but what I didn't see was any actual remorse for his crimes. Also, the restitution that he has to pay. While the victims were there to explain to the court the impact of Lafitte's behaviour on them and how it devastated them. Now, you might think that the money, that $3.55 million in restitution, was going to go to the victims, but apparently that's not the case. It's going to go to PMPED and Palmetto State Bank, as apparently they are the victims in this, which is utterly unbelievable. How can that be the case? Also, the prosecutors asked for nine to eleven and a half years and the 3.55 million restitution to go to the victims. Lafitte got off lightly, in other words. But rather than breathe a sigh of relief, he's decided to appeal. The chop's on this bloke. And yes, there's a pattern with all these old white entitled men. They believe the system should work in their favour every time no matter how badly they behave and treat others, because that's what the system has always done. That's what we have to change. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean skin loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, 
but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island, where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. On the 19th of August, Murdoch was indicted by a grand jury on nine more criminal counts, including computer crime, money laundering and computer crimes, including stealing $121,358 from his brother. On the 9th of December, prosecutors made the claim that Murdoch killed Maggie and Paul to gain sympathy and escape accountability for his financial crimes. On the 6th of December, the grand jury indicted Murdoch on nine counts of tax evasion, alleging he failed to pay $487,000 in state income tax whilst making nearly $14 million over nine years. The indictments also alleged Murdoch stole $7 million from his law firm. That brought the total number of indictments against Murdoch to over 100. Just think about that. That tells you the scale and scope and I believe it's just the tip of the iceberg. Murdoch was getting away with things for so long, he would have just thought that he was untouchable. And he believed it because he was. On the 20th of December, state prosecutors announced that they would seek life in prison without the possibility of parole in the double murder trial. It's curious to me that the prosecutors in this case had asked for a sentence of life in prison rather than the death penalty, for which the case would have qualified under South Carolina law. Alan Wilson, the state attorney general, whose office prosecuted the case, said in an interview that prosecuting the case would have been significantly more costly if his team had pursued the death penalty, and he noted that a death sentence would have been unlikely to lead to an execution anytime soon, if ever. South Carolina has not executed anyone since 2011, in part because of the difficulty the state has in obtaining lethal injection drugs. There are so many factors you have to consider, Mr Wilson said. We felt like this case is complicated enough. And I would co-sign on that. This is such a complex and complicated case, as I said 16 episodes ago when I started this series. There are so many layers to it. So it made sense not to overcharge and have to reach a higher burden of proof because juries really do think long and hard before they put someone to death. It is a huge responsibility, and therefore they didn't want to complicate it any further. However, in terms of motive with this case, I believe that it's simple. It boils down to male entitlement, ego, greed, and power and control. Murdoch needed to remain in control, and he believed he was untouchable. He believed it because he was. Well right up until he was arrested, and in my opinion, it all happened because of Mallory Beach. Mallory is a shero in this, and we mustn't forget her and the role she's played. The trial began on the 23rd of January 2023. Now I know that many of you watched the trial, so it's not my intention to talk through every detail of it in my series, as I've covered key moments from it throughout. So unless you, my lovely listeners, tell me that you want me to dissect Murdoch's testimony, for example, or some other aspect of the trial, I'd recommend that you listen to Mandy Matney's podcast as she talks through the significant moments and she interviews Creighton Waters. One thing I will share is that I don't believe Murdoch did himself any favours when he gave evidence. His hubris was his downfall. 
I suspect he thought he could talk his way out of it. In other words, he thought he was better than he was. His plan backfired. He quibbled over terminology and word choice, trying to see round corners of questions, and I don't believe the jury liked that and they didn't see him as being credible. On the 3rd of March, after just three hours of jury deliberation, Murdoch was found guilty of Maggie and Paul's murder. Now, this was not a surprise to me, given the overwhelming and compelling circumstantial evidence, and you will hear from certain talking head criminal defence lawyers that this was a surprise. One thing I have to say about that is that they obviously weren't following the trial in detail, or they're just trying to spin the narrative. As I've said before, the timeline evidence and the video evidence from Paul's phone was utterly compelling. Murdoch also feigned emotion, and he lied and lied again. Now, if he had nothing to hide, he had no reason to lie about being at the kennels just moments before Paul and Maggie were murdered. Given the timeline, verified by the data, so not someone's opinion, but by multiple sources of data, the three phones, the car data, the video evidence, the steps data, it's not possible that it could have been anyone else. And there was no evidence of another shooter. There was no DNA and no trace evidence of anyone else being up there that night. I believe Murdoch wanted to give evidence as he knew he had to explain why he lied and he believed he could win the jury over. The jury simply did not believe him. They went to Mazelle for themselves and from that crime scene visit, they knew what he was saying was a lie. They knew what he was saying just did not make sense. His personal power had faded there was just too much evidence stacked against him. Now, as I said before, I do believe Murdoch thought he was untouchable. And just remember, all of his life he had been. What he said went. But not anymore. For once, he was being held to account, and that is a big deal. On March the 3rd, Murdoch was sentenced to two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Judge Clifton Newman handed down the sentence after berating Murdoch for nearly 20 minutes, urging him to come clean about the shocking crime and the lies that he had told to cover it up. His shifting stories, the judge said, necessitated more lies, a pattern that kept repeating itself. Where will it end? It's already ended for many who have heard you and concluded that it will never end, he said. But within your own soul, you have to deal with that. Stood in handcuffs in his beige jail jumpsuit, Murdoch maintained his innocence. He said, I would never hurt my wife, Maggie, and I would never hurt my son, Paw Paw. That's an interesting statement to me, because he doesn't say I did not shoot my wife, Maggie, or my son, Paul. He said, I would never hurt them, because in his mind, he did not hurt them. He killed them, and he killed them quickly and humanely, in his mind, and he believes that they weren't hurt as it happened so quickly, and he said as much to Marion, Maggie's sister, when she asked. Also, the fact that he called Maggie Mags and Paul Pawpaw throughout the trial, in my opinion, was just another manipulation. He didn't use those nicknames once in the three interviews with Sled or in the 911 call. Murdoch is incarcerated at McCormick Correctional Institution on the South Carolina-Georgia border, and no doubt we'll hear more soon regarding the trial for his financial crimes. 
I want to finish up the timeline with a few other key events that happened that are connected to the case. On the 21st of March, Stephen Smith's death was officially ruled a homicide. In April, Stephen Smith's body was exhumed and a second autopsy was performed. That autopsy apparently did result in some interesting findings and I'll most likely return to Stephen's case once more detail about the investigation and autopsy becomes known. But I do want to say that my heart goes out for Sandy, who has been fighting for so long for the truth about what happened to her son Stephen, and I really hope that we're almost there. Stephen deserves to be honoured and remembered, and Sandy and his sister and his friends deserve the truth. On the 20th of April, Murdoch was indicted on multiple charges of income tax evasion, the first criminal charges to be brought against him since the double murder. On the 1st of May, Murdoch formally corrected the record and said the dogs were not present or involved in the fall and death of Gloria Satterfield. He also clarified he was not present at the time of Gloria's so-called fall. I thought it interesting that there was no mention of the dogs on the 911 call. I'll also share with you that I never bought into the whole dog narrative from the start and I'm curious about who was there when this so-called trip and fall happened. Obviously Maggie and Paul were. I heard them on the 911 call. Was Murdoch inferring that they had something to do with Gloria's death? That's the subtext for me and of course this is in keeping with Murdoch's MO. He's willing to throw anyone under the bus to save himself. Or was he just trying to get out of being liable as Nautilus, the insurance company, are suing him for the money that he stole? Both are possible. But going back to the 911 call, it concerned me to hear Paul annoyed with the call handler when he was being asked questions, and he also said that he had picked Gloria up and she fell again. Also, the narrative changed from falling up steps to falling down steps. And of course, the dogs being the reason for the fall. You should really hear the 911 call for yourself. Take a listen to this. 9.24 a.m. 38 2nd February 2, 2018. Come here. 911, where's your emergency? Uh, 4147 Moselle Road. Hey, can you give me the address one more time? Make sure I got it right. Yes. 
Okay, I just, I, I've already got them on the way. Me asking questions does not slow them down, man. Knowing if she's conscious is one of the things that the medic needs to know if she's responding really. at all to you. No. Okay, so she's not responsive at all. Well, I mean, she's mumbling. Okay, so she is somewhat conscious. Um, is she breathing okay? Yes. Is she bleeding from anywhere? Yes, her head. Hey, are you guys able to control the bleeding? No. Can you I put a clean rag or anything on it? Uh, yeah, I got it. Okay, is she bleeding from, like, her face, the back of the head? I've got an ambulance coming. Sir, my name what? Where exactly is she bleeding from on her head? I'm not sure, at the top of her head. Okay. What happened? She just fell back down. Can I get off the phone so I can go down there? Can I have your name and phone number? Or are you able to Thanks. bring the phone down by her? What? Are you on a cell phone where you can walk down there I'm and on talk? A cell phone. No. Okay, can you bring it with you so we can ask her some questions about what kind of pain she's having? Hello? Yeah, can can you ask the patient what kind of pain she's having? Ma'am, she can't talk. Okay, do you know... She's cracked her head and there's blood on the concrete and she bleeds out of her left ear. Okay, she's bleeding out of her ear? And out of her head. She's cracked her skull. Okay. All right, the other lady said that she had tried to stand up and fell down again? No, she, I was holding her up. And okay. She told me to turn her loose and she was trying to use her arm, but then she fell back over. Okay, do you guys know who she is? Yes, yeah, she works for us. Okay, do you know if she's ever had a stroke or anything before? Ma'am, can you stop asking her to stroke? I already, have them on the way. I already have them on the way. Me asking questions does not slow them down in any way. These are relevant questions that I have to ask for the ambulance. One of my questions is, has she ever had a stroke? I don't believe she's ever had a stroke, not that I know Okay. That. Okay, is she able to talk to you guys at all, or is she unconscious now? She's not unconscious. She's just mumbling. Okay. I believe she's maybe hit her head and maybe has a concussion or something. Okay. Maybe. Do you know what her name is? Gloria Satterfield. You said Sanderfield? Ma'am? You said Sanderfield? Satterfield. Satterfield. Okay, what's the house look like out there? It's, it's a, um, it's offset off the road. Okay. It's a big house, got a one driveway. With a long um, driveway? Yeah. Um, is there a gate or anything down there that they're going to need to come through? There's two big brick columns that have to come through. Okay, but there's no, like, gate code or anything that they need? No, ma'am. And tell okay. them that they can look for a fellow on a 6x6 Ranger. Okay. Waiting on them in the road is green. You know what the, they probably know what the Ranger looks like. Yeah. You said, like, so green. on a black got on a black sweater, okay. a hat, and pants. Okay. All right. All right. Um, if, if something changes with her, if she loses consciousness or anything like that, I need one of you guys to call me back right away, okay? Okay. Well, how about how long is it going to take? Cause this took us that I don't know. I, I've had them on the way since, since Maggie first called me. They were toned right away. 
Okay. All right, but they're, I think they're coming. Hang on one minute, let me check. They're coming from somewhere on Belt Highway in Ruffin, okay? That's where their station is. Thank you. All right, but like I said, if something changes, call me back. Yes, okay. Now, I have to wonder whether Paul played a part in Gloria falling up or down those steps. Could he have pushed her? According to his ex-girlfriend, Morgan, Gloria pretty much raised him, and he took Gloria's death pretty hard. That's exactly what she said. Well, Paul had a history of violence to women. Let's not forget that he abused and hit Morgan many times. Where did he learn that behaviour from? Paul also had a history of alcohol abuse. I did posit the question about why Paul drank to oblivion. Was it because of his father's behaviour? Was it just because he could and his family allowed him to? Or was he trying to block out something that he just did not want to remember or deal with that related to Gloria's death? I don't know the timeline of his drinking to oblivion, but I do wonder if it started around this time. Across the three weeks that Gloria was in hospital, the Murdochs didn't visit her. So although Paul apparently took it hard, and Gloria was supposedly like family to the Murdochs, I mean she had worked with them for 20 years and pretty much raised Paul and Buster, when she needed them the most, why didn't they visit her? That stands out to me. Then at Gloria's funeral, which Murdoch didn't offer to pay for, Murdoch told her sons to sue him, and offered his best mate, Corey Fleming, up to be their lawyer. Again, this is strange behaviour, and should have been a red flag, particularly given the circumstances of her death, and the Murdochs not going to the hospital to even visit Gloria. Unfortunately, there was no autopsy. Her death was recorded as being from natural causes. However, according to Eric Bland, who's the lawyer for Gloria's sons, Gloria had a closed head wound and an open head wound and 12 broken ribs. I have many questions about the nature of her death. In June 2022, South Carolina law enforcement officials announced they sought and received permission to exhume Gloria's remains. The exhumation stemmed from a Hampton County coroner's request that led to the state law enforcement division opening a criminal investigation into Gloria Satterfield's death. Take a listen to this. Developing news right now, for the first time, we are seeing investigative reports and hearing audio interviews connected to the 2018 death investigation of Alec Murdoch's family housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield. Her death at the Murdoch home was ruled an accidental trip and fall, believed to have been caused by the family's dogs. News 2's Riley Benson reviewed the latest information and heard from the attorneys earlier today. In just a few moments, you will hear Alec Murdoch tell investigators Gloria Satterfield claimed the Murdoch's dogs caused her fall down the front stairs at the family's Moselle house. This has been her believed cause of death until Murdoch claimed last week he lied about the details to secure a better insurance payout. In February of 2018, Satterfield went to the Murdoch's Colleton County home to pick up a check. Murdoch told investigators he was at work when his wife Maggie called him after she found Gloria in a pool of her blood on the house's front stairs. Both Maggie and Paul Murdoch would describe this on the 911 call. Murdoch initially claimed when he arrived, Gloria mentioned the dogs had been involved in her fault, something Paul Murdoch would corroborate in an interview. Murdoch would secure a nearly $4 million wrongful death settlement from his insurance company, who is now suing Alec. Alec was interviewed weeks after the accident. Take a listen to what he had to say. 
And she knew where she was. She knew who I was. I mean, she, she obviously was not functioning at full capacity, but she did. She, I mean, she knew those things. Did she uh, describe the chain of events in any way to you? Obviously, she was, she was out of it. She indicated that the dogs had caused her to fall. Okay. Attorneys for Satterfield's family held a press conference today in which they claim Murdoch is a proven liar and therefore say there's no reason to believe he is now telling the truth. They say this is likely an attempt by Murdoch to get out of having to pay additional money. All of a sudden, now Alex is the, the modicum of honesty, the modicum of truth. Um, it's just more spin by him. He doesn't tell you where the money went, the, the $3.8 million. He doesn't tell you how Gloria died. Satterfield's attorneys say Murdoch's latest legal filings could potentially open him up to new criminal charges, including insurance fraud. They say the Satterfield family does not plan to reopen Satterfield's death investigation. Murdoch lies so easily to capitalize on situations, the worst situations. The question for me is, was this purely about seeing the financial opportunity and exploiting Gloria's death to make money? Or was he trying to deflect and cover up for Paul? I just don't know. But again, both are possible. It's not either or. Through evaluating Murdoch's behaviour, I believe he really is capable of anything. As you heard in the clip, on the 8th of May, attorneys for Gloria Satterfield's family announced the family will not be asking for the investigation into her death to be reopened. So that sounds like that may well be the end of it. But for me, there are multiple red flags here. On the 19th of May, Parker's Corporation had their request denied for being dropped from a wrongful death lawsuit filed by the family of Mallory Beach. Quite right too. On the 31st of May, convicted double killer Murdoch formally pleaded not guilty to the series of federal financial crimes at an arraignment in Charleston. Now this was his first appearance before a judge since March the 3rd, when Judge Clifton Newman sentenced him to two consecutive life sentences for brutally murdering Maggie and Paul. And so this not guilty plea is really interesting to me because Murdoch admitted some of the financial crimes throughout the murder trial. When he gave evidence during his double murder trial, he admitted to stealing money from his clients and his law firm. Take a listen to this. All right, everyone. So here's where we are after a compelling day of testimony with Alec Murdoch taking the stand in his own defense. Judge Newman is now hearing uh, a motion or a request from defense attorneys. They want to interrupt his cross-examination. Might presume they want a little time with their client to try and rehabilitate uh, what many view as some damaging testimony that the prosecution has been able to elicit today. But the prosecution just said they don't want to interrupt their cross. Our Greg Adeline and Nick Neville are in the courtroom. So we'll get the update on what Judge Newman has to say about that in just a moment. But Billie Jean, the testimony today has been astounding. Absolutely compelling. When Alec Murdoch took the stand earlier this morning in his own defense, uh, uh, attorney Jim Griffin coming out, straight out asking him, did you murder your wife Maggie and your son Paul? And he said no, but Alec Murdoch, though admitting to lying to state investigators for months, saying that 
while I did not murder my wife and son, I was indeed at the kennels at 8.44. The, the video recovered from my son's phone by mm-hmm. the state. Even though I said I wasn't there, it, it has been determined that was just moments before both Paul and Maggie were shot to death. So that was very interesting, compelling testimony just straight out the gate this morning from Alec Murdoch himself testifying that while I am a liar, I am not a killer. Well, that's what he wants the jury to believe. Let's take a listen to just one moment uh, of his testimony on the stand today before we check in with our crew on Walterboro. Take a listen. I didn't shoot my wife or my son anytime, ever series of questions and Alec Murdoch, as Billie Jean said, pointed out that what he wants the jury to believe was that because of his drug addiction, that is the reason that he lied to investigators, um, but that it did not, the drugs did not take him out of his mind enough to become a killer. He wants to try and walk that line with the jury. Correct. And he also mentioned while he was on, you know, this opioid addiction that there were some things that he couldn't remember. Right. As far as clarity, he was not thinking straight. I believe that was the term that he used. And that's why he lied to state prosecutors, which was interesting because he also said during the testimony in his own defense that he had a distrust of law enforcement, of SLED, even though before all this came to light, it has been established by the cross-examination of prosecutor Creighton Waters that Alec Murdoch was indeed a volunteer solicitor. Absolutely. Meaning that he worked closely with the state. So worked that was closely with law enforcement and even carried a badge. Our mm-hmm. Greg Adline has made his way outside of the courtroom. Greg, so much ground to cover as a part of this testimony today. In your estimation, what were the most compelling moments as you sat inside the courtroom or, or observed that testimony today? Billy Jean and Dondi, we just wrapped up what was a bruising cross-examination by Creighton Waters with Alec Murdoch. It was stunning at times to hear all of these apparent uh, different admissions from Alec Murdoch talking about some of the ways in which he's lied and has misrepresented himself to his clients throughout the years, to his family, to his friends. So this was a bruising cross-examination, and really that was the role of Creighton Waters. You knew that it was going to be tough, but boy, in the past hour, he got Alec Murdoch to admit to a boatload of financial crimes, a lot of misdeeds, a lot of dealings there that prior to this, we had not heard from Alec Murdoch. And really all of this was to really damage his credibility. That is where Creighton Waters wanted to go, because after this morning, it was an Alec Murdoch who was very emotional talking about the murders of his wife and son. So essentially Creighton Waters got right into it, hammering credibility time and time again. Waters reminding Murdoch that today was the first time that he ever admitted that he was at the kennels at 844 after months upon months upon months of denying it, not only to law enforcement, but also to friends. Waters also sought to show that family legacy that you talked about. The Murdochs have been a family name, a household name, holding down the solicitor's office in the 14th Circuit for close to 100 years. And so Creighton Waters went there talking about some of that influence, uh, seeking to cast Murdoch as an experienced litigator, sifting through evidence, uh, giving jurors closing arguments, hinting to this jury in many ways that Alec Murdoch is a seasoned pro who knows how to work evidence and work a jury and to lie to people straight faced without remorse. That was the key that he was going after time and time again in this cross-examination. Waters highlighting of that long association 
association with law enforcement, saying that he carried a badge. And that was very interesting when he talked about the boat case in 2019 when Alec Murdoch showed up at that hospital after the boat crash involving his son Paul carrying a badge. And Creighton Waters showed a picture to Alec Murdoch saying, take a look at this picture. Do you see that badge that's hanging out of your pocket? Were you attempting to wield influence over that investigation? That was a very key moment because as Creighton Waters told Alec Murdoch, he said, up to this point, did you even know that you did that? And it seemed to throw Alec Murdoch off a little bit in this cross-examination. And then Waters apparently also really hit him on talking about these financial crimes, financial misdeeds, but not before it was in that discussion of the boat case when Alec Murdoch throughout the day was referring to Paul and Maggie Murdoch as Paul Paul and Mags, and then talking about Rogan Gibson as Roro. It was in that questioning about the boat case that Creighton Waters called Alec Murdoch on it and said, when did you start using these nicknames? Was it during your uh, conversations with law enforcement? Was there any instance throughout this whole trial that you have referred to them in that way or throughout the law enforcement investigation? And that was a key moment. Take a listen to it here. In the course of this, did you ever refer to Paul as Paul Paul during that? I don't know. You know, do you recall? How I referred to, to I can say Paul if you prefer that. No, I, I, you can call him whatever you want. I'm just asking you if you ever called him that during the course of that entire investigation. Or is that also the first time today, at least publicly? Is today the first time I've called my son Paul, Paul, Paul? No, sir, that is not correct. Have you ever called him that on all the recorded statements that this jury has heard? I don't know. Have you ever called Rogan Roro? And I call him the recorded Roro statements. All the time. And the recorded statements, did you ever call him that? I don't know. So again, this was Creighton Waters in his best effort of hinting to the jury, or at least saying it almost outright, that maybe perhaps Alec Murdoch was playing to them. And we had talked to some legal analysts here and those who were watching the jurors throughout the day, wondering how that all played with the jury earlier on with Alec Murdoch. He was addressing them face to face the whole time. You saw him slightly turned to the jury as he made his appeals in that direct examination that we'll get to with Nick Neville in just minutes. But really, it was during this cross-examination where you noticed Alec Murdoch directly answered Creighton Waters. No longer was he looking at that jury as he had to answer for his financial misdeeds. And it was very interesting how Creighton Waters went case after case after case, talking about Hakeem Pinckney, a quadriplegic who Alec Murdoch admitted to stealing money from, and then another teenager who he admitted to stealing money from. And basically Creighton Waters' argument was this. You sat down with these people and talked to them straight-faced as you were stealing money from him. And he was trying to signal to the jury or say to the jury that that's the Alec Murdoch that you just saw over the past few hours that gave you an emotional tale, a rendering of June the 7th, 2021, that could do it straight-faced, was one of the best of the best when it came to being a litigator here in South Carolina, had a legal legacy behind him, and in many ways had no problem flaunting that in certain ways. And Creighton Waters' argument to this jury was, he could go ahead and misrepresent 
the facts to you straight face, just like he did to those financial victims all of those years. So it was riveting. And you know what? It's just getting warmed up. Creighton Waters got cut off. He was cross-examining Alec Murdoch for probably about an hour or so here. But again, he hasn't touched much of the night of June the 7th, 2021. All of this, again, hammering that credibility, which is where he decided to go. And it is interesting. You'll say one more thing, because as people have been watching this trial, many people thought that Alec Murdoch perhaps should have been tried for financial crimes before he was ever brought up on murder indictments. And it's interesting that in his cross-examination of Alec Murdoch, that is exactly where Creighton Waters went, talking about the issue of credibility and that Alec Murdoch perhaps cannot be trusted, laying the foundation before he gets into what exactly happened on June the 7th, 2021. Let's get to our Nick Neville, standing by live right now. Nick, it was riveting earlier on to hear Alec Murdoch describe the night of June the 7th, 2021, under direct examination. Yes, it was, Greg, absolutely. So one of the key takeaways during that direct examination was Alec Murdoch trying to explain away one of the key inconsistencies with his timeline from the night of the murders, that he was never at the dog kennels. He said that he lied to investigators about this because of his opioid addiction. He said it would make him paranoid at times. He also mentioned a distrust of law enforcement. Now, as you said, Greg, it was very notable that during this direct examination, Murdoch had his body turned towards the jury. He was rocking back and forth at times. He was sobbing at times when he was discussing his wife and son. But several times during this direct examination, including right off the top, he emphatically denied the murders of his wife and son. He said, quote, Mr. Griffin, I didn't shoot my wife or son any time ever. Again, he did admit to lying about being at the family dog kennels the night of the murders, and he said that Basically, as his addiction evolved over time, he would get paranoid at points, thinking that a police officer was following him. He said it could really be triggered by anything. But notably, he said that even though he would be triggered by certain things due to his addiction and it would make him unpredictable, he he did not commit these murders. So he also testified that Maggie asked him to go down to the dog kennels that evening. He said that he drove a golf cart there. That was something that we had never heard before. He got a chicken out of the family dog Bubba's mouth. There was a long exchange, about a 10 minute exchange during direct examination where he talked about this. He says that he was only at the kennels that night for a brief period of time. And then he said that he went straight back to the house, to the air conditioning, emphasizing the word straight, saying that he then took a brief nap, which he had previously said he was napping during the time that he was found to be at the kennels. He says that after he spent some time, around 20 minutes with his mother at their home in Almeida, he then discovered the bodies. And as he was describing this, he was taking a number of pauses. He said uh, that it was, quote, so bad. He also said that as he checked the bodies for pulses, he got blood on his fingertips. But you'll remember that Deputy Laura Rutland, who responded to the scene, described his appearance that night as clean from head to toe. Murdoch went on to contradict testimony from his mother's caretaker, Shelley Smith, who said that she saw him carrying a blue tarp like something into his mother's Almeida home after the killings. And he also denied ever seeing a blue raincoat that was covered in gunshot rounds. 
residue. He said he'd never seen that before, never touched it, basically saying that uh, Shelly Smith, he has no idea what Shelly Smith was talking about when she was testifying. Um, he also told Griffin multiple times that he had urged investigators to get the GPS data from his car, saying that that data would exonerate him. His lawyers, of course, did not want him to testify, worried about the scope of that cross-examination that Greg just outlined for you. Uh, defense attorney Jim Griffin asking Murdoch again to turn back to that key lie about the kennels. He asked him why he continued to lie about it. Here's a portion of what he said in response to that. Take a listen to why he said he was lying. You know, oh, what a tangled web we weave. But once I told a lie, I mean, I told my family I, I had to keep lying. How fascinating that Murdoch himself talks about what a tangle web he was weaving. And he still continues to. Here he is pleading not guilty to the financial crimes, yet he admitted them previously in court under oath. He said, I took money that wasn't mine and I shouldn't have done it. I hate the fact that I did. I'm embarrassed about it. Oh, really? Murdoch said he was embarrassed about it. Yeah, I don't think so, because here he is still lying and not owning his behaviour. Now, if you recall in the clip at the top of the episode, it was highlighted that what he admitted to in the murder trial can be used against him in future trials. So I really hope that that happens. And yes, let's not forget Murdoch said his so-called drug addiction meant that he wasn't thinking clearly, that he was paranoid, and he didn't trust SLED. Yet he was a lawyer working closely with SLED. Also, noticeably, no one at SLED or PMPED reported any bizarre or suspected drug-related behaviour. No one. It's just Murdoch saying this at court to explain why he lied to everyone, including SLED, for months. Also bear in mind that the federal charges for the financial crimes are separate to the dozens of state charges against Murdoch which are still pending. All of this, to me, just further reiterates and reinforces that Murdoch has no qualms about lying at any time to anyone. To his family. To his clients. Sled. Under oath in court. Or even to a judge. He says whatever he needs to in the moment with the hope that no one is paying close attention. Well, I hope Judge Newman and everyone is paying close attention to his behaviour. I said I'd update you on the sentencing of Corey Fleming. This case really is never-ending and there's still breaking news. On August the 14th, Corey Fleming, Murdoch's best mate and co-conspirator, was sentenced to 46 months. That's three years and eight months in federal prison an order to pay $120,000 in restitution and $20,000 in fines. Now, he surrendered himself and was taken into custody at the sentencing. He'll also be sentenced in state court next month. Corey Fleming pled guilty to one charge of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. He was previously facing 23 state charges and a prison sentence of up to 275 years. Under federal law, the crime of wire fraud is a Class C felony, punishable by up to 20 years in prison, three years of supervised release and $250,000 in fines. However, Judge Gurgle sentenced him to just 46 months. Fleming had 62 letters of support and it sounds like Judge Gurgle believed Fleming was remorseful. 
He apparently hung his head in shame and acknowledged that he and he alone was responsible for his actions and behaviour and that the victims, Gloria and her sons, deserved better. So that's good he acknowledged that. However, what's curious to me is that he has not pled guilty to the state charges. So I have to ask, how remorseful is he really? Was it all for show? Because being a lawyer, he understood the system and understood what was needed at each stage. And of course, he knows many of the people who work in it. Now, I wasn't there to watch and see for myself, but all I can share is that his actions and behaviour are not congruent. And it feels like he's only sorry because he knows he has to be at this stage, this stage of sentencing, where he is hopeful that he can influence the judge and receive a lesser sentence. And let's face it, it worked. So this carefully orchestrated strategy paid off for him. I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens at his sentencing on September the 11th for the state charges. Murdoch will soon go on trial for the financial crimes that he's been charged with, and it's no surprise to me that he keeps changing his story. That's consistent with his MO. From seeing and hearing Murdoch across two days in court, the jury decided Murdoch did not have an ironclad alibi, which is what the Murdoch camp originally released to the media, calling him a grieving husband and father. The jury decided that he wasn't a poor drug-addled bloke whose family had been killed, but rather they determined, after hearing from him, after visiting Mazel, after listening to five weeks of testimony and more than 100 pieces of evidence for themselves, that Murdoch was guilty. He was caught out by Paul, the little detective, as he was called. It was his video footage which placed Murdoch at the kennels just moments before Maggie and Paul were brutally killed. Why lie about that and lie time and time again? If he were innocent, there would be no need to lie. Three people were up at the kennels at Moselle on June 21st, 2021, and only one person left there alive. Murdoch was the only person who could have killed them, given the timeline. For me, this was always a victimology and timeline case. That's why I have continued to centre Maggie and Paul and have spent so much time and so many episodes on the micro and macro timeline. Murdoch was given plenty of opportunities to tell the truth and he didn't take them. He could have said about the drugs and the financial problems, but he never offered those things up. He threw Paul under the bus time and time again. After all, that was the kernel of truth. The best lies are told using some truth. He protected himself. He lied and lied again and is a proven liar. He only cared about himself. He never expressed fear when others did. He never showed any remorse or regret at having left Maggie and Paul there or that he never checked on them. He never expressed any concern for Buster or for his own safety. This did not go unnoticed by me and you've heard me say so many times it's not always what people do that gives them away. It's what they don't do. But let's not forget, Murdoch fooled a lot of people. And people don't like to be wrong about others, particularly in a small community. He may have done some good things too, but he certainly made a lot of very bad decisions that solely benefited him. Murdoch's a conniving and despicable man who executed Maggie and Paul in cold blood to stop his own exposure. Psychopaths have a scorch-the-earth mentality and they will do anything to protect themselves from exposure. It's really hard for normal folk to understand, 
because it's not something you or I would do. But this is something I've seen time and time again, and it's why I felt it important to share with you my expert knowledge and insight from those cases. Now, I could carry on with the Murdoch Murders series, as there's still much more that I could say. Of course, there's Stephen Smith's murder, which is still being investigated. And I'll keep you updated if you're interested in hearing more. Also, do listen to Mandy Matney's episodes about Stephen's case. But I'm going to leave it here, for now. I've been working on a number of other complex and challenging cases, and some of those cases are at key junctures that need my help and yours, crime analysts. Next week, I'll be sharing my analysis of the Menendez murders, the murders of Kyle and Kitty on August 20th, 1989, by their sons, Lyle and Eric Menendez. Now, you might think you know the case. However, I can guarantee that you really don't. I'm unravelling it all with the help of some very special guests. I've also been analysing and deconstructing the Gilgo Beach murders on Crime Analyst's YouTube channel, so do go over and subscribe so that you hear more about my thoughts on the case, the victims, the evidence, the investigation, the crime scene behaviour, and so much more. I post unique content weekly, and it's all for free, for gratis, yes, so go over and subscribe to Crime Analyst's YouTube channel. For now, I'm going to sign off thinking about Maggie and Paul Murdoch, Stephen Smith, Gloria Satterfield and Mallory Beach. Like I said, if it weren't for Mallory, perhaps none of this would have come to light and she must not be lost in all the chaos. I also wish nothing but good thoughts for the victims' families and all those who've been victimised by Alec Murdoch and his cronies, the good old boys' network, including Russell Lafitte and Corey Fleming, who played active roles along with those who enabled him like Judge Carmen Mullen. I'm also thinking about Morgan Doughty. She was victimised horribly by Paul. And I'm thinking about all the passengers on the boat the night Paul crashed it. This has left a legacy and imprint on all of them too, as they were just starting out in life. I'm going to end where I started, with a strong, unflinching, direct message. Actions have consequences and there must be accountability when so many lives are upended. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst, and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. 
Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.